1: Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. We are massively excited today. Alina, tell everybody why.
2: We've got some, actually we've got a really awesome, awesome talk going on. So we've got Sri Sri Nair, who is a secret historian. Uh, His father and father-in-law were in the Indian Air Force and he spent a lot of time collecting materials on the Indian Air Force and he spent most of his life surrounded by them too. He's written a fantastic book that is very much needed about this very subject the Forgotten Few, and he's here to talk to us more about this very subject. So
3: hi sri Hi uh, Alina and Alex. It's uh, very good to be here. It's my first time on a podcast so be gentle with me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we only ever abuse each other. You'll be fine. Yeah that's true. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> Let's just start at the beginning then. Let's say tell us about the Indian Air Force. When was it formed and how?
3: Well, officially, the Indian Air Force was formed in um, 1932, or to be more accurate, the legislation setting it up as an independent air force was passed in 1942. In 1932, um, but there were actually uh, Indian aviators participating alongside the British, even in World War One. So, as early as 1917 and 1918. Uh, there was a very small number of a tiny, tiny number of Indian aviate, Indian pilots who flew in um, um, in combat in World War I. And one of them did receive uh, a DFC, Distinguished Flying Cross, for his service uh, in World War I. But of course, at that time, they were essentially people who happened to be Indians flying in the Royal Flying Corps or the very early Royal Air Force of the time. The Indian Air Force, as uh, as a force of its own, as a force uh, representing India, came into being in the period 1932 to 1933. Uh, There had been a handful of Indians training at the Royal Air Force College at Cranwell starting from 1930 onwards, and they became the nucleus of the early Indian Air Force. And uh, that's essentially chapter one of my book, how... uh, Um, uh, the force came into being. And there was a fair amount of um, uh, resistance in the British establishment. Um, uh, Lord uh, Marshal of the Royal Air Force, uh, Sir Hugh Trenchard, for one, uh, was not particularly keen to see an Indian Air Force established. And uh, some of the correspondence has some... uh, um, Lines from him in which he makes his uh, disquiet with the idea of an Indian Air Force quite clear.
1: That is the politest way I've ever heard anyone discuss (laughs) Trenchard in all my life.
3: Thank you, (laughs) ma'am.
1: Do you you know the best story I ever heard? Do you know um, Morris Baring, his assistant?
3: Absolutely. He had
1: a system of punishment for when he was inappropriate and rude to people, um, and it ranged from hiding things so that he couldn't find, I don't know, his glasses or whatever, to um, once smashing the window of his motor car so that he had to Ouch. ride all the way across France with a draft to teach him a lesson for being <laughs> mean to someone. <laughs> so yeah, Maurice Baring, anything you read that trenchard's mean and horrible, just know that Maurice Baring paid him back at some stage. That's good to know, but... Uh, <laughs> But you
3: know, he actually had—Trenchard um, uh, oh, and bearing between them actually had uh, quite a role in um, uh, in in, in uh, conceiving the operations for which the Indian Air Force was first formed. If I can take a minute on that, um, uh, you know, at the time, uh, you know, between the two wars, uh, Royal Air Force—the uh, Royal Air Force had dwindled to almost nothing. I mean, it ended the uh, first—it uh, ended the First World War with you know over a thousand squadrons and um, you know um, hundreds of thousands of personnel uh, but between the wars it uh, dwindles to you know uh, to just i think around 500 aircraft or something and trenchard was uh, petrified that the air force would be disbanded or absorbed back into the army and uh, into the british army and royal navy so he kind of looked around for work to do and what he came up with was the idea of imperial air policing in uh, in these uh, distant and unruly colonies like uh, somaliland iraq and the northwest frontier province of india
1: mm-hmm.
3: so uh, the indian air force does owe him a little <laughs>
1: So, so
2: what happens in the interwar period? I mean, what actually happens to the Indian Air Force? Uh,
3: so, as I so as I say, uh, formed in uh, the first squadron um, uh, was raised in nine, uh, you know, a few months after the uh, legislation was passed, early nineteen thirty-three, on the same date as the um, as the Royal Air Forces formation day, first of April. Um, and um, so 1st April 1933 was when the first uh, A flight of the 1st Squadron of the Royal Air Force was formed. And, um, you know, after a suitable period of working up and training, and, um, you know, it had a, um, it had a, it had a British commander and, uh, uh, and a British second in command, but most of the others were, uh, most of the other officers were uh, from those first batches out of Cranwell. Um, after a period of working up, they were put to work doing um, Imperial air policing, um, over the northwest frontier province of uh, of undivided india of pre independence um, pre partition india um, and um, essentially they were suppressing uh, tribal uh, disturbances tribal um, uh, uh, you know uh, the the the, uh, the the, the, the resistance to British presence, which the Patans have uh, sort of made clear for over 100 years, if, uh, if I can put it that way.
1: They're my people. Put it however you want. <laughs> they're argumentative <laughs> they yeah they are <laughs> they uh, you know, they can be wonderful i, I have
3: patan friends and uh, you know I, they can be wonderful people but they didn't like the british around so um, uh, so the uh, so you know so the royal air force had several squadrons doing imperial air policing work in that area also in that period uh, the soviet union was regarded as uh, a potential enemy and uh, the british had concerns about Soviet hordes pouring <laughs> over the border into Afghanistan and India. So a lot of um, um, de- the defensive um, mili- the, the military defenses of India were oriented in that um, northwestern direction in the same area. So uh, as, as an interesting little aside, if I may, I, I read somewhere that Trenchard once uh, uh, suggested the use of air policing within Britain to suppress industrial disturbances. And, uh, the Secretary like of Trench State Shod. for Air, <laughs> yeah, it does, doesn't it? Uh, but the, the Secretary of State for Air at that time was uh, no less than Alex's namesake, Sir Winston.
1: It was Winston, wasn't it?
3: And he, uh, it he shot down the idea immediately, as far as Britain was concerned. Yeah. Uh, but he clearly had fewer qualms about uh, imperial air policing in the colonies. Yeah, know? I just I <laughs> love
1: sometimes with trenchard, if if in doubt, shoot at it. Yeah, something like that yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you're so, being reined in by Churchill then wow you really are in, yeah. <laughs> you've gone quite far off the uh, beaten track haven't you absolutely but, anyway, so, so. <laughs> yes brilliant so 1939 September the war begins if I don't say on the 1st of September Alina really, will kill me but for Britain and her <laughs> empire it's a couple of <clears throat> months later well, and we're not British talking America, about yeah. Poland today so it's, <laughs> September the 3rd, 1939, my Nan's 12th birthday, World War Two begins for Britain. What happens to the Indian Air Force?
3: Well, at first, to be honest, very little, um, because as I said, um, uh, you know, in, in India, uh, there was actually a bigger concern about uh, the Soviet Union than about Germany. Um, the Soviet Union had, a, had signed a non-aggression pact with Germany and was much closer to India than Germany. And British government thinking at the time was oriented towards protecting India from the Soviets. Um, so, for, so initially, um, at, an, at an official level, very little. Uh, the Royal Air Force was still actively flying in um, uh, the Northwest Frontier province and um, the Indian Air Force was uh, supporting them and gradually taking on more and more of a role uh, there. Uh, but there were... Um, some far seeing people in the british establishment um, and um, and some Indians among them as well, uh, there were these committees there was a keen there was a committee called the Keen committee There was another uh, committee there were, there were a series of committees named for the senior British officials who chaired them, which little by little they kept uh, pushing for uh, uh, greater Indian um, involvement in um, the um, in in the air force, as well as for uh, uh, more uh, for more Indianization of the officers of the Indian Army, and um, and these two uh, you know these two sort of trends um, in in a, in very much in a sort of two steps forward, one step back kind of way. Um, these two trends just uh, kept. Uh, gradually building up the, um, the Indian presence. I mean, they, um, uh, they, they, couldn't, uh, they couldn't create a second and a third squadron for the Indian Air Force immediately, uh, but they started creating some of the ecosystem. They created an Indian Air Force volunteer reserve, which is essentially amateurs, that is wealthy uh, Indians and uh, Britons uh, who happen to be resident in India, learning to uh, uh, many of whom already had private flying experience, uh, learning to fly service aircraft and be prepared to uh, to be called up um, just just like a, like uh, more like the Royal Auxiliary Air Force, really than the the Royal Air Force Volunteer Reserve. But they'd started building up uh, an ecosystem of um, aircrew as well as technicians as well as workshops where the infrastructure of aviation. Um, could be built up in what was in India was still uh, not at all an industrialized country at that time. So these steps were important and um, contributed to, um, uh, to, uh, to, help, uh, to building a self-sustaining Indian Air Force at the time. So,
2: so what kind of aircraft, because well, I know it changes, but what kind oh, yes. of aircraft at this point was the Indian Air Force using
3: yeah, well, at the, at, the st- at the outbreak of the war in 1939, um, the Indian Air Force was still using fabric-covered biplanes. They were using essentially Westland Lysander, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Westland Wapities and Hawker Hearts. Now, both of these are biplane aircraft with, um, uh, you know, with some uh, metal skin covering the engine, but otherwise, for the most part, fabric-covered. And uh, they would have been recognizable to World War I uh, pilots and uh, uh, you know they uh, they kept those uh, until well into about 1941 42 or thereabouts and then they first went into battle using lysanders westland lysanders now lysanders would not by any stretch of the imagination be considered a very modern combat aircraft as you probably know of them as the aircraft which used to take soe agents into france at night and land in handkerchief-sized landing strips. Um, So uh, they were very useful in the uh, Northwest Frontier Province as well. And the Indian Air Force actually took them into battle in uh, Burma in 1942. Then in 1943, the Indian Air Force started to acquire hurricanes. And hurricanes were, as far as World War II is concerned, hurricanes were really sort of the standard equipment of the uh, Indian Air Force. Eight of the 10 squadrons that the Indian Air Force grew into flew hurricanes um, in in combat. Um, But they started using hurricanes only when the British had stopped using hurricanes for frontline combat. Um, Once again, if I can diverge slightly, the the Indian army of the time... uh, which was, of course, entirely officered by the British, Uh, they actually had a policy that um, uh, Indian soldiers, Indian sepoys, as they were called, uh, were always issued rifles or muskets one generation or one release older than the British soldiers were issued with. And uh, something very similar seemed to happen in the air. I mean, um, Indians, as I say, went into uh, the First World War flying uh, biplanes fabric covered biplanes they started flying hurricanes just about the time that hurricanes were no longer being used for frontline combat uh, by the british and uh, later on they started getting spitfires just about the time british spitfire squadrons were converting to thunderbolts so there's material there for uh, for a phd thesis i think i
2: kind of <laughs> love that you know we're not using these planes here you go you have them
3: now something like that yes brilliant, so,
1: brilliant. <laughs> do they take part in the battle of britain
3: um Short answer is no. There is uh, no evidence that um, Indian aircrew um, took part in the battle of Indian Air Force aircrew took part in the battle of Britain. The first formal batch of Indian Air Force aircrew to come to the UK during World War II arrived there in October 1940 which is, you know, if they'd squeezed in five sorties with a fighter squadron, you know, the, you know, the week after they arrived, they'd probably qualify for the Battle of Britain class. But they didn't actually get to a squadron till late in 1941. Now, there is one interesting speculation, which is that there may have been a small number of Anglo-Indians, in the sense that um, Anglo-Indians was used at that time, that is to mean people of mixed parentage, uh, mixed British and Indian parentage. Uh, there may have been a small number of Anglo-Indians who, f- who had joined the RAF by that time, uh, but uh, we have one or two names that are distinctly possible. But at that time, in the culture of that time, they were probably keen to hide the Indian part of their heritage. There would have been people who were attempting to pass themselves off as entirely of um, Anglo-Saxon heritage.
1: With uh, suntans. With
3: (laughs) But the short answer to your question is, didn't formally fly uh, fly in the Battle of Britain. But that first batch of Indians who came to the UK was flying in defense of the UK from 1941 onwards with frontline squadrons flying from Kenley and Biggin Hill and uh, iconic RAF stations like that. And one of them, uh, squadron leader MS Pooji, who uh, served with two frontline RAF squadrons uh, during that 1941 period, He says he once had a convers he told me that he once had a conversation with a British civil servant who told him you're not qualified for the Battle of Britain Clasp and he said to him, Then whose battle was it that I was flying in day in and
1: day out? (laughs) (laughs) This is a good point. Love that line. So what happens to the Air
2: Force in nineteen forty one?
3: The facetious answer is Pearl Harbor happened at the right. end of
1: 1941. <laughs> I like that answer, but, uh, we like facetious but, on it. Yeah. But
3: uh, jokes aside, um, even before Pearl Harbor, uh, the Indian Air Force had started growing um, in 19, over the period of 1940 to 41, but with no great sense of urgency. Training was an issue, and there was no great um, urgency about solving the training issues. Failure rates in training were very high, and uh, I've read um, you know excerpts from one or two inquiry reports into why there were such high failure rates, and uh, they're, they're really whitewashes. I mean, they just blame um, the cadets for uh, you know not having the uh, you know the, the the mentality or the mindset to grasp <laughs> the uh, you know the the instruction and all that. Uh, But then in December 1941, um, you know, uh, Pearl Harbor happened. And that was transformational, I think, for all governments and armed forces in Asia. In the great sweep from China through French Indochina, which is now Vietnam and Malaya and the Dutch East Indies, which is now Indonesia and Burma, I think there was a a major change in the level of um, urgency around, uh, you know, after Pearl Harbor. And it's palpable if you if you read the original documents, uh, you know, you you can see a change in the tone of in in the level of urgency and the level of um, uh, intensity with which uh,
1: people are demanding to know why something or other hasn't happened yet. So, So by the end of 1941, then, there are three squadrons in the Indian Air Force, aren't there? So what is going to happen to them after Pearl Harbor? Yeah, to be clear
3: i mean um, the second and third squadron were formed by uh, you know by, by essentially by uh, requisitioning all the aircraft of the um, you know the auxiliary of the coast defense which were being used in what were called coast defense flights and also by impressing um, uh, airliners and there were uh, uh, airliners of that time which were being used on the the indian leg of the um, uk to australia um uh, air travel which as you know at that time was a you know was a sort of a two week journey with uh, leisurely overnight hops you know with, with daytime hops and leisurely overnight stops so and uh, uh, so a lot of those aircraft were uh, were sort of impressed into service and used by the by uh, the coast defense flights and some of those um, um, early biplane f- combat aircraft were passed to uh, number two and number three squadrons. And um, uh, they didn't actually see action um, during 1941, uh, but the process of, um, um, you know, seeding, I think, um, I think essentially what number two and number three squadrons of the Indian Air Force did was they sort of uh, proved how you could raise a squadron relatively quickly. Um, seven squ- um, the first squadron had taken seven years to grow from being a single flight to a full flight of, uh, to to, three fo- to a full squadron of three flights right? but two and three squadrons went to being uh, full strength squadrons much more quickly, and two and three squadrons sort of uh, showed how that could be done with, um, with all kinds of uh, uh, improvised training and improvised uh, um, armament practice. Uh, in a a relatively short period. So 1941 essentially uh, was that proving period. And uh, in 1942, in early 1942, the Indian Air Force, as the Indian Air Force went into action, although by that time there had already been about 40 Indians in action in the European theater and in Australia and uh, some other locations. 1942 was when the Indian Air Force went into action as the Indian Air Force stepping out of the Northwest Frontier Province.
2: So staying on 1942, uh, is the Indian Air Force at all involved with the surrender of Singapore? um, And what were the consequences for
3: that? Uh, no, the Indian Air Force was uh, not present as the Indian Air Force in uh, Singapore at the time of the surrender. There were, of course, there were, there were tens of thousands of Indian Army troops um, and there were, there were one or two, there were very, very tiny numbers of Indian Air Force personnel, mostly uh, not so much air crew as personnel from trades that sometimes switched between the Army and the Air Force, like medical branch personnel. Um, But um, there were too few and too junior for there to be a sort of institutional impact on the Indian Air Force of the surrender in Singapore. But what, it, what did happen was that the, the fall of Singapore was a huge psychological blow to the British. And I've seen it compared to, uh, I, I read somewhere comparison to the fall of Constantinople to the Ottoman Empire and, you know, shock and horror in in the European establishment. Um, and so it was a huge uh, psychological blow to the British and therefore to the command structure within which the new Indian Air Force was operating. Um, there were occasions, there are, there are a couple of uh, accounts by Indian veterans of that time saying that there was so much defeatist talk by British personnel that uh, an Indian officer actually put uh, some British personnel under close arrest for defeatist talk. Now, I actually find that account a little hard to believe uh, because the British were still very wary about giving Indians command authority over British or Dominion personnel. So I don't know if that would have happened. But the fact that it's sort of... A, uh, you know a little bit of a of a, uh, of a of a of a war story exchanged by indian veterans of that time uh, says to me that um, you know the 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 consequences for the indian air force were mainly the in the sort of uh, caution the the overly cautious approach to um, expanding um, indian involvement um, at that, uh, at that time. And having said that, I think, um, you know, in Burma, they, there was in the early part of Burma, the, uh, the, the early part of 1942, the Burma campaign of that year was an unmitigated disaster for the Allies, but number one squadron of the Indian Air Force stood out for the flexibility and the spirit and the commitment that they showed during that campaign. Uh, there was also some Indian Air Force involvement in the battle for Ceylon and, uh, you know, a couple of... Um, very elderly Indian Air Force aircraft did actually help to spot the Japanese fleet in the Bay of Bengal. Um, and were very lucky to get away without having to go into combat for the first time against the fearsome Japanese Zeros. Um, so, uh, so uh, again, uh, to go back to your original question, no direct involvement with the surrender in Singapore, but a lot of non-operational impacts on what they were allowed to do.
1: Did things get better for the Indian Air Force in 1943?
3: Very, very much so. Uh, I think um, the Indian Air Force, uh, for starters, uh, the Indian Air Force grew to seven squadrons during that year, and uh, they completely re-equipped. All seven squadrons were operating, um, you know, what would be called all-metal monoplane aircraft. Uh, Five squadrons were operating hurricanes, and two squadrons were operating this obscure American design called the Vulti Vengeance which uh, it was an American design, but the Americans never flew it. Uh, but um, the, in, in the period 1941-42, I think, uh, uh, you know, the period before Pearl Harbor, the British were um, very happy to accept um, any hardware that the Americans would uh, uh, provide them and Valti Vengeances were among them. So in 1943, two squadrons of Vengeances, they were dive bombers, by the way, and there was a certain glamour about dive bombers. The uh, Stuka, the successes of the Stuka in Europe had uh, uh, made dive bombers quite as glamorous as fighters in, uh, uh, in, in many eyes. And, um, you know, people used to volunteer, Uh, Indian uh, Indian air crew used to volunteer to go to dive bomber squadrons as much as to go to hurricane squadrons. Uh, To be clear, the hurricanes were not being used as fighters, not as interceptors in the way that they were being used um, in the European theater at that time. So there was a, a, you know, going to one of the vengeance squadrons probably was um, more of an opportunity to throw a punch than going to a hurricane squadron, which is probably being used as a reconnaissance um, uh, for reconnaissance missions at that time. Apart from that, in 1943, there was a lot of training capability built up within India, uh, including training in what would now be called stage three or operational training. And there was systematic gunnery and um, ops training, there were large scale exercises, there was formal evaluation of units before they were cleared for operations. Um, and at the end of the year, starting around November of the year, uh, Southeast Asia Command was formed um, and uh, the Allies went back into Burma with a million plus troops and, um, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 squadrons of aircraft. And at that time, we, by that time, we had seven, seven Indian Air Force squadrons. So... Uh, So all of that, the preparation for all of that uh, happened during 1943 and the launch of operations began around November of
2: 1943. So in 1944, we're going to move on a little bit, the Indian Air Force, they head back to Burma. So something happens that makes it such a memorable year. What is it?
3: Well, uh, several things um, happen. I think early in 1944, uh, the um, the Allies are hit with the Japanese Hargo offensive uh, in the Arakan region, which is coastal Burma, the area that's now called uh, Rakhine State. And, um, uh, and that was um, in some ways um, where the uh, Indian Air Force first... Um, uh, went into systematic action with multiple squadrons. There were two or three squ- Indian Air Force squadrons through, um, throughout the campaign, and um, and 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 doing very very well. Um, the, uh, they were doing a lot of the uh, the uh, the uh, the Allied armies in that theater were fighting in a region that was largely unmapped, and and so um, Indian Air Force squadrons were uh, were flying ahead of the troops. Uh, Uh, taking mosaics of photographs and uh, bringing them back to be developed overnight within the squadron itself and distributed to the troops, sometimes dropped to the forward troops, uh, By uh, um, by a hurricane, um, uh, the following morning. So so they they could see what uh, the disposition of uh, uh, Japanese troops uh, was, um, and or what the terrain, what kind of terrain the the Japanese were coming through towards them um, by the following morning. And this was at a time, as I say, there were no maps, and there were none of the other uh, aids to uh, uh, to planning uh, that there uh, that there are today. Um, so it was—it was uh, it was an, it, it wasn't, uh, you know, a glamorous fighter versus fighter kind of role, but it was invaluable uh, to the uh, uh, to the ground forces. And uh, slightly later in the year, in central Burma, um, the uh, a second Japanese offensive uh, by uh, three divisions of the Fifteenth Japanese Imperial Army uh, fought their way uh, to within a stone's throw of the plains of Assam and were stopped at the uh, battles of Imphal and Kohima uh, where some of the most intense and bitter fighting on the ground took place and uh, four or five Indian Air Force squadrons were involved throughout throughout the, the period of those battles. In flying above the troops and, uh, and it 's important again to um, emphasize that uh, the kind of uh, fighting they were doing was very different from what was being done in Europe um, in, in some cases uh, I mean they were doing a lot of the reconnaissance, both photographic reconnaissance as well as tactical reconnaissance um, where they uh, uh, they 'd spot targets and sometimes engage them with their own weapons, or uh, if it was judged that uh, their weapons were not strong enough, they would call in heavier. Um, uh, an aircraft that could carry bombs, heavier bombs or rockets, and um, and guide them in, stay over the targets until they could be guided in, and um, uh, so obviously they were very vulnerable to um, uh, to Japanese uh, fighters, and um, and there was uh, there was a lot of uh, concern about. Uh, uh, Japanese fighters. At that time, the, uh, uh, the, the Japanese Zero, which was essentially a naval fighter and didn't actually uh, uh, fly over during the, la- over the land campaigns in Burma. Uh, but um, uh, th- almost every radial engine, uh, single engine, radial engine Japanese uh, fighter aircraft was identified as a Zero. Um, Most of the Japanese aircraft in that um, theater were actually uh, uh, a different type that's now codenamed Oscars, uh, built by a different company. The Zeros were built by Mitsubishi. The Oscars were built by Nakajima. But they were very similar looking and they had very similar characteristics. They were very, very maneuverable, very fast. They had good um, um, uh, range, uh, but they were very lightly built. So if you could actually get your guns onto them, they fell apart pretty quickly. So, uh, so it was, again, a very different kind of, uh, fight, of air fighting uh, from what prevailed over, um, over Europe. Uh, uh, but it was, uh, unquestionably, um, it, it, it was a period when the Indian Air Force were fighting uh, as much more of an equal alongside um, RAF and Dominion Air Forces and some U.S. Uh, uh, squadrons as well. And there are some, uh, 1944 uh, does um, have some stories about uh, um, attacks by combined formations of Indian, Australian, New Zealand, uh, British um, uh, squadrons uh, uh, attacking Japanese targets. And I, 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 I kind of try to imagine what the RT chatter must have sounded like, on days like that <laughs> <laughs> do you want to know
2: i can just hear you do you you know the famous scene the polish one um where they're uh what's the film my mind's just gone completely back to what the film's called you know and they're yelling at each other in polish and then yes. the guys yeah that's the, when you just said that that's what's going on in my mind yes. the indian guys are yelling at each other and you've got the australians going what are you talking about and you know it's just yeah that's what's going through my mind right now <laughs>
3: Probably something very much like that. And there was also uh, it, it was a landmark year because all the Indian Air Force squadrons that had been raised up to that time went into action. They went into action in a mainstream kind of theatre, although not very well covered. And also, as it happens, you know, D-Day happened in um, in June of 1944, as you all know, and uh, there were more than a hundred Indian Air Force personnel. Um, involved, although there was there was no Indian squadron involved as a squadron, there was an attempt to take uh, one Indian Air Force squadron uh, along with the uh, the rest of the uh, uh, the, the, the invasion force. Uh, but it never happened and I, I suspect there was probably um, a thinking that uh, um, you know, uh, the the the, uh, the Allies wanted to have, wanted to showcase free French squadrons participating in the liberation of France and, um, and uh, uh, Dutch and Belgian aircrew involved in the liberation of um, Holland and Belgium and as well as the British themselves. So the Indian, so having an Indian squadron there never came to fruition. But a handful of Indian pilots flew during D-Day and one was lost in a particularly poignant way on the very day Paris was liberated, and uh, he uh, he crashed uh, just out uh, a little way outside uh, uh, Paris, uh, close to a village and uh, The village priest uh, came and uh, stopped uh, uh, the, the, the british there were, there were British army troops on hand, and the, the French village priest came along and stopped the British soldiers from uh, burying him there, and said uh, he died protecting this village, so we want to bury him in. The village. Uh, so he's one of the few that particular Indian pilot is one of the few who's uh, um, buried in a village graveyard rather than in a uh, Commonwealth War Graves Commission cemetery. And um, he was flying um, a typhoon at that time, the you know, very iconic ground attack um, aircraft of that time. And for decades, his family didn't know, uh, he, he wasn't married, he was single, he was a young man in his early 20s. He, he'd actually been a student at Bristol University when the war broke out. He joined up the, uh, uh, the Royal Air Force, initially in the ranks as a sergeant pilot, and had uh, been commissioned shortly before he was killed. Uh, for decades, his family didn't know until uh, they were finally traced in 2007, and in 2007, there was a ceremony held to uh, at which his family members were present and his gravestone is still there is uh, in that uh, French village um, with inscriptions in English French and in Hindi.
1: So when did the Indian Air Force change to the Spitfire and what was their reaction? Yeah
3: well the first Indian Air Force to change over to the Spitfire uh, changed over in late 1944 And actually, again, um, an Indian Air Force squadron was uh, uh, permitted to take over the Spitfires because the Royal Air Force squadron was changing to Thunderbolts. At that time, the Spitfire in Burma was, you know, this late 1944, the Spitfire in Burma was no longer being used uh, to dogfight Japanese fighters. And that had been happening in late 1943 and early 1944. But by late 1944, the uh, uh, you know, I, I think a, a fairly solid measure of air supremacy had been achieved. And um, uh, the Spitfires had been used for ground attack, which they're not really uh, very suitable for. So the Royal Air Force had started changing to its Spitfire squadrons to Thunderbolts, to the the big American ground attack fighter called the Republic Thunderbolt. And uh, the Spitfires uh, uh, were being passed on to to the colonial (laughs) units. So the 1st Indian Air Force squadron changed over to a Spitfire in late 1944 but it was still a matter of enormous pride and i've talked to a couple of um, squadron veterans um, in um, you know who who served with those squadrons which converted to the spitfire early and they you know they were 70 or 80 they were in their 70, their late 70s or early 80s by the time i talked to them and their eyes still lit up. You know, they said, oh, at that point, we got Spitfires. We got a bunch of Spitfires. And they were beautiful aircraft. <laughs> and you know, These were second-hand aircraft. These were aircraft that had been flown by RAF squadrons. Flogged. It's a Spitfire. So, it's a Spitfire. <laughs> so they loved it. So, so they were thrilled. Okay. So what does
2: 1945 look like for the Indian Air
3: Force? Well, a lot of intense participation um, down da- down through Burma. Um, you know, the um, uh, after after the Arakan campaign and the uh, Imphal and Kohima battles, um, which was sort of um, on on the the coast. The Arakan campaign was on the coast of Burma and the imphal and um, kohima campaigns were sort of on the the border between um, uh, northeast india and uh, and burma uh, but from that point onwards they were actually driving the allies were actually driving into burma on the way to you know going towards siam and malaya and uh, uh, so uh, the, the, the big difference between from ni- from that early 1944 to 1945 in early 1944 um, Uh, they were still fighting defensive battles. In 1944, Japan was still on the offensive until Imphal and Kohima. It was the, um, the last theater where Japan was still on the offensive. And it was only after... I mean, in, in, in every other theater uh, of the war by that time, by mid 19, uh, by, you know, honestly, by late 1943, if not by mid-1944, uh, the Allies were on the ascendant. Uh, but inf- but uh, uh, central Burma was the only place where Japan was still advancing. And in theory, you can envisage uh, a situation where if Japan had broken through to the, uh, uh, to the plains of Assam, and, you know, there was, uh, there was very little to stop them from going a long way deeper into India. And if, uh, uh, you know, if El Alamein and, um, and uh, other turning points hadn't taken place in North Africa by that time, if the Germans had got to the Suez and the Japanese had broken through into India, uh, you can see a sort of uh, the beginnings of a, of a real nightmare scenario for the Allies and potentially a transformationally different um, end to the war, right? but uh, but that didn't happen. But uh, but as I say, until 1944, the Japanese were still on the offensive, right? and uh, but by 1945, they were falling back, and so that uh, the 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 the, uh, the operations of the Indian Air Force and of all the Allied uh, forces in Burma at that time were in some ways a much more rollicking sort of uh, you know uh, charging uh, charging to victory, and uh, there was. Uh, uh, there was some uh, very tough fighting down the, uh, uh, the spine of Burma because uh, uh, not to make uh, you know, too much of a point of it, uh, the, Japanese are the, the Japanese soldier is the finest defensive fighting soldier that exists. It. they were so everyone knew that and the indian um, army the um, the allied armies had a real task on their hands and there was also the uh, the, the the sort of uh, natural deadline that they needed to reach rangoon before the monsoons broke because once the monsoons break movement through the kind of that kind of terrain the tropical jungle terrain becomes almost impossible and as it happens Uh, Indian Army troops reached Rangoon almost exactly on VE Day in May 1945. And on the day they entered Rangoon, another little trivia which I've uh, mentioned in my book, uh, a certain Royal Air Force group captain called John Grandy was flying over Rangoon in a Dakota and an Indian Air Force squadron leader called PC Lal was flying over Rangoon in a hurricane on the day the ground troops reached there. That was quite a dramatic day because the Japanese actually fell back and evacuated Rangoon before the troops, uh, before the Allied troops got there. There was a huge prisoner of war camp in the center of Rangoon. And uh, the prisoners there, as soon as the Japanese left, the Allied prisoners there had painted that they got some whitewash from somewhere and they painted on the roof the words, Japs gone, extract digit. Now, extract digit, as you know, is a parliamentary way of saying something that, uh, uh, <laughs> much less parliamentary. Uh, so, so I think, you know, they were, um, they used that phrasing because there had been, the Japanese were experts at um, deception, at uh, using false messages to mm-hmm. lure allied troops into ambushes and so on. So I think the use of that phrase was. It's pull your finger
1: out, isn't it? Yeah.
3: It is indeed. Get a it move
1: exactly
3: on. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, so as I say, uh, this RAF group captain called John Grandy and, uh, and the Indian Air Force coordinator PC Lal were in the air over Rangoon on that day. And uh, the interesting bit of trivia is that both became chiefs of their respective countries' air forces in the period the late 60s and early 70s. So Marshal of the Royal Air Force, Sir John Grandy, and Air Chief Marshal PC Lal. So... <laughs> <laughs>
1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And um, what happened to the Indian Air Force after the war? Right. So
3: uh, uh, in the uh, immediately after the, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the Japanese surrender, um, one Indian Air Force squadron went to Japan as part of the British Commonwealth Occupation Force. Um, And uh, I've written about that separately. And uh, uh, to me, it sounds like a fascinating period. And the Indian experience is very, very poorly documented. Uh, To me, it sounds like a fascinating social and cultural encounter uh, between uh, two uh, very strong Asian cultures, uh, one of which is coping with unprecedented defeat. And the other is just beginning to think about independence and stepping into the world on its own. And um, I, I, I am told that uh, American units that went into uh, Japan at that time took academicians and professional uh, sociologists and cultural anthropologists with them to try and document the encounter. But um, I don't think the Indian Air Force did anything of that kind. However, what probably did help a little was that the um, the senior uh, British officer on the the air component of the British Commonwealth Occupation Force was Air Vice Marshal Cecil Boucher. And uh, way back in 1933, uh, as a flight lieutenant, Cecil Boucher had been the commanding officer of the first flight of the first squad of number one squadron of the Indian Air Force. So he's had a very, very long connection with uh, the Indian Air Force. And uh, You know, 15 or so years after that, he's here in Japan as the air officer commanding of the British Commonwealth Occupation Force, which includes um, uh, one Indian Air Force squadron, a couple of um, Australian and New Zealand squadrons, and several British squadrons, of course. And there's also, of course, a very large American um, occupation force. So it sounds to me like it would have been a very fascinating period. The the Indian veterans of that period certainly uh, remember it with a lot of interest. Um, And... um, Uh, Back in India, I think, uh, interestingly, uh, going back to what he was saying about hurricanes and spitfires, um, most of the, you know, the the British had started demobilizing at that time, and uh, so suddenly there were very large numbers of Spitfires available. Right? So the Indian Air Force squadrons of that time, which were still on hurricanes, were very quickly changing over to Spitfires. Right? So, it, I mean, they weren't using them in war because uh, the war, the formal, um, you know, formal World War II was over, although there was still a little residual fighting in mopping up and in imposing surrender on uh, Japanese detachments that may not have received information about the surrender. Um, but uh, you know, there, suddenly there were more Spitfires available and a lot of Indian Air Force squadrons were converting to Spitfires. Um, all the squadrons were being pulled back to, um, uh, to India. There were a couple of squadrons in Burma and also the squadron in Japan. And, and there was a massive involvement of all the Indian armed forces in refugee repatriation in that period, uh, with a fair amount of, uh, um, uh, uh, of uh, refugee repatriation flights being carried out in both directions. Uh, by the Indian Air Force and by the remnants of the Royal Air Force that were still in India. And um, then, of course, um, in uh, 1947 came independence, 14th and 15th August were Independence Day for uh, Pakistan and for India. And uh, so a matter of enormous uh, joy and elation, as well as great sadness in both India and Pakistan. And uh, Sadly, I think uh, within a few months, um, you know, the both countries were pitched into the, uh, the 1947-48 Kashmir War, the first war between India and Pakistan. So luckily, it was confined to uh, Kashmir and didn't spread to the rest of the border. So the Indian Air Force was um, uh, down to about six and a half squadrons. It was 10 squadrons at the uh, on independence and uh, six and a half squadrons, the equivalent of six and a half squadrons came to India and three and a half went to Pakistan, and uh, four of those six and a half squadrons were involved quite intensively in the 1947-48 operations. Uh, But after independence, and certainly in the 1950s onwards, uh, the Indian Air Force actually grew quite big. I mean, as I say, there were 10 squadrons at the end of World War II, dropped down to six and a half because of partition. Uh, But they grew and grew uh, in the 1950s and 60s, partly because during that period, Uh, India and Pakistan were among the few countries that were still, they'd just become independent, they were still building up the institutions of an independent country, and they were among the few countries that were still expanding their armed forces at that time. Many other countries that had participated in World War II were demobilizing and um, running down the size of their armed forces, uh, just as happened in Europe after the fall of the Berlin Wall. But India and Pakistan are still growing their armed forces. And uh, the Indian Air Force uh, peaked in around the end of the, around the late 1990s or thereabouts. It peaked at about 45 squadrons after, um, you know, after having started painfully with one squadron and been stuck at one squadron for seven years from 1933 onwards. Um, and then it grew to forty-five squadrons by about the end of the twentieth century, and it's it's at about thirty squadrons now. So it's still a fairly sizable um, air force, and um, uh, has a has, has a pretty good reputation. It exercises regularly with uh, uh, with uh, the Royal Air Force, with the US Air Force, and even um, with, uh, uh, with Japan. The Indian the Indian Navy exercises very extensively. Uh, with the Japanese Navy, the Air Force has had some exchanges. Um, and uh, uh, and uh, today, I would say the, you know, the Indian Air Force is numerically certainly uh, one of the largest air forces in the world, still uh, organized and uses rank structures and unit structures very, very much um, those of the Royal Air Force, inherited from the Royal Air Force. And uh, the Indian Air Force today is still very much the descendant of um, a component of the uh, allied air forces that participated in world war Two.
2: i think it's incredible how it's gone from this small one squadron to what was it you said now 30 it's about primary. 30
3: now but it um, you know it it, it it may grow a little again now in the next few years it did peak at 45 squadrons uh, in the late 1990s I that's so, absolutely
2: uh, incredible so how is the indian air force remembered now
3: I think the answer to that is it's remembered very well. Um, Its contributions in World War II particularly are remembered very well. But in India, I would say uh, not necessarily in a very informed way. And the reason for that is uh, that uh, immediately after independence, I think there was a tendency within India to overlook the contributions of the armed forces to World War II. And um, Field Marshal Wavell, who was the, the last Viceroy but one, the one before Mountbatten, he's been quite outspoken about how India has uh, uh, been wrong about not recognizing um, the um, Indian armed forces who participated um, on the Allied side in World War Two. But I think you can, if you step back a little from that understandable feeling, you can kind of understand why uh, the Indian government of the time Uh, tried to build that slightly different narrative. The Indian and Pakistani governments were among the first post-colonial independent governments after World War II. There was no blueprint for how to build the institutions of a new state. I think... uh, Countries which have become independent more recently, like East Timor, for instance, uh, they have, uh, you know, there, are, there, there is the experience of literally dozens of countries that became independent in the second half of the 20th century to draw on. India and Pakistan had no such blueprints to draw on. So it's not surprising that the Indian government worked very hard to build a narrative of India having been united in fighting for independence uh, rather than in this uh, slightly more nuanced way of having a dual loyalty both to uh, to India's independence as well as to fighting fascism during World War Two. So I would say for the first 30 years or so after independence, there was not a lot of uh, uh, importance given to the Indian Armed Forces um, role in, uh, as uh, part of the Allies in World War II. But from about the 1990s onwards, when there was a lot of um, economic restructuring and um, and, uh, and globally after the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, I think India had also, I think it's fair to say, India had turned inwards a little after the first 30 years after independence. We needed to build up our own industrial plant and our own industrial capacity. But from the 1990s onwards, we've increasingly integrated with the rest of the world, Um, economically, socially, and in many other ways. And that increasing integration with the rest of the world um, in the last 20 or 30 years have helped raise awareness of India's role on um, the side of the allies during World War II. And um, there was definitely some ambivalence in the first uh, 30 years or so after independence. But I think, um, you know, now that it's all 75 years behind us, I think we do uh, embrace and take pride in um, India's role in World War II. There was actually a little uh, uh, kerfuffle in India at the time of the release of the film Dunkirk, Christopher Nolan's film Dunkirk, uh, because there were Uh-oh. no Indian characters shown <laughs> on the beaches of Dunkirk. Oh. In reality, there was a very small Indian, there was an Indian presence. It was quite small numerically, but there was an Indian presence. And I think a lot of Indians were hoping to see that in the film. So the fact that Indians were annoyed about not being there in on the beaches of Dunkirk, not being shown on the beaches of Dunkirk in the film, says to me, I think, that we are now much more comfortable about embracing our role in World War II.
2: I, com- I completely agree, which is why the next thing I'm going to bring up, and I can hear everyone moan, and everyone, including Alex, moan, yep, she's going to bring up the polls. Of course, I bring up the polls and everything. <laughs> so um, my question is, can we compare the Indian Air Force to the polls that flew in the RAF?
3: I think we can absolutely make a lot of comparisons. And again, I think there's material for, for a whole book, if not a series of PhD theses on this uh, topic. I think, um, you know, what's common between them is, uh, you know, um, uh, I think that uh, they were you know, the polls came from a country that had just been Uh, in a a very short period of time being overrun by uh, the fascists. The Indians came from a country that had been colonized for the previous couple of hundred years and uh, they were all uh, united in fighting um, uh, fascism and uh, they did train together. I posted on Twitter a couple of weeks ago a photograph of a group of Indian and Polish pilots together at 56 OTU, Operational Training Unit, At Sutton Bridge in the UK. So, Indian pilots did train alongside Polish pilots. They were both probably training to fly hurricanes. The Poles went on to uh, form uh, some truly distinguished um, fighter squadrons uh, that served in Europe during. Um, uh, during the early years of World War Two, and the Indians went back to uh, you know mostly went back to uh, to fight in the uh, the Burma India theater and then to uh, to serve in, uh, uh, in in some small numbers in uh, Malaya and Indonesia and, and in Japan itself. Uh, but they, they had some common challenges, I mean, uh, one of which would have been language. I think uh, English is not the mother tongue uh, for either of them. And I know that um, uh, you know, Poles, were, Poles and other East Europeans were forced to undertake some English language lessons before they were allowed near a uh, an aircraft and uh, something very similar was uh, done to a lot of Indians as well. They were made to undergo English elocution classes, on, although um, in India many of them had in fact studied English in school and college. Um, I think uh, they faced similar prejudices until they proved themselves. And, and I think the, the 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 story of the breakdown of those prejudices um, is probably very very similar, and there must be parallels uh, between what the poles experienced and what the Indians experienced before uh, you know they were uh, before they were sort of accepted as equals. Um, and uh, and I think um, you know it it. Uh, the, the the sort of connections and parallels, uh, you know, do go on. I mean, in, uh, uh, I think you, you in the very first chapter of this, uh, or the introductory chapter of uh, this book, uh, which sh- this book on Polish pilots in World War II, which shares the title of my book, The Forgotten Few, the introduction to that chapter starts talking about uh, this, uh, um, uh, this swashbuckling Polish pilot called Jan Zumbak, who uh, uh, who flew as a mercenary in Biafra during the conflict during the Biafra conflict in Africa. Now Indians actually encountered him uh, in the Congo a few years earlier, when uh, the when Indian pilots were flying as part of the UN force in the Congo, and uh, Jan Zumbak was uh, flying for the breakaway province of Katanga during the uh, during that same crisis, and. Uh, uh, there's another little s- snippet that uh, that aviation nerds might love which is to say that for about 30 years um, in after independence indian air force pilots have been training on a polish fighter trainer the uh, PZL iskra oh, really?
1: the iskra was a, is a <laughs>
3: is a much beloved fighter trainer that's that two or three generations of indian fighter pilots have learned to fly on so so there are connections, and and I'm sure you know if if someone has the resources to fund it, I, I'm absolutely certain there's there are books and PhD theses to be had in comparative experiences.
2: I think that could be a future project for us. You know,
3: love to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> but
2: sh- don't tell anyone. <laughs> tell us what were the total losses of the Indian Air Force.
3: Um, well, the Indian Air Force uh, ran up to about 25,000 personnel by the end of World War II. Um, I think uh, we lost about 600 aircrew during the war and about 1,000 personnel all told, including those who were killed in uh, air raids and on the ground. And uh, you know, there are a number of uh, great stories about, uh, uh, about, uh, about some of those losses I and mean, um, uh, I, I mentioned to you that the Indian Air Force flew vengeances, which were uh, particularly obscure kind of dive bomber. Now the vengeances were uh, were, were, uh, were crewed by a two man crew uh, so there are a number of stories of uh, crashes during which one of the, one member of the crew was knocked out, and the other one struggles to save the uh, the, the, the one who 's been knocked out. and so there are some uh, incredible stories, including of one particular Indian airman who survived three crashes, and was pulled out of uh, oh, really? pulled out of three crashes. Three. Wow. And um, uh, the 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 officer who pulled him out of the third one was decorated with a George Cross. So, for 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 his uh, um, heroism in having rescued him. So so yeah, about six hundred uh, air crew and about a thousand overall killed during World War II. The numbers uh, are relatively small, but the base, of course, is just. 25,000. And 25,000 was the end of the war. In the early parts of the war, it was much smaller. So,
2: Wow, thank you so much, Sri, for coming to join us and talking to us about the Indian Air Force. It's something that we needed to talk a little bit more about. and We need more Indian history because it is just so incredible, especially during the Second World War. Uh, thank you very much.
3: Thank you for having me. And I was absolutely delighted to talk about uh, this topic. And uh, I know that there are uh, several um, uh, young Indian historians who are interested in the topic. Uh, there are a few in the UK itself. There are people, of Indi- there are people like Dr. Professor Yasmin Khan and others who've, uh, you know, who are in the UK. But I know that there are some young Indian historians in India itself who've just started to research this topic in a little more detail. And I'm sure any of them would be delighted to be involved.
2: Fantastic. Thank you so
3: much. Thank you again.
1: Join us tomorrow when Amanda Charland will be back. We love her. She's coming back this time to talk Crusader archaeology. So don't miss that one. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so.